0: Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting, hi! Welcome to episode number forty-five of the Community Composting Podcast. I have uh, a special guest here today, uh, Kirsty Petchi with Just Zero, a pretty recent organization uh, based out of Massachusetts that focuses on. A lot of things, um, and I'm just going to kind of summarize real quick off your website, but, you know, you're making a difference with zero waste laws and policies, which is why I really wanted to speak with you because I think what we promote on this podcast is the community composters and grassroots movements need to kind of focus on the overarching policy so, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just diving into your uh, how you got started and everything.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just zero. We just started it this past summer, Charlie. And thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I yeah, we, we're not where our address is in New York. i mean, in New York in ba- in Massachusetts as far as having like a mailing address, but we're working nationally. Um, You know, the world has changed. I think COVID sped some of that change up. So we really can work nationally and connect with people all over the country like this podcast, which is really cool and really fun. Uh, And we found that folks across the country need help with writing good laws and figuring out what are the best policies uh, to adopt because you don't want to put all this work into setting up a system and then have it be benefiting corporations and not real people, or have it be creating more toxicity or spreading more toxicity through the system. So that's definitely where we're coming from. We wanna be fair and just in what we do, which is where the just and just zero comes from. Um, as far as where we got started, you know, where I got started in this, uh, I, as I was saying to you before we started, I, I uh, have always been interested in recycling. Uh, It seemed very logical when I was growing up that we should be able to recycle a lot and not put as much in incinerators and landfills. So it was more resource conservation, kind of that old school way of thinking when I was growing up Uh, and then learned about climate when I was in college, which, remember, that was a long time ago. I started going to college in 1989 and we knew then I took courses then about climate change and how it was going to be a real problem. And over the years, learned more and more about how to avoid the impacts of climate change. A lot of those, as you know, have to do with waste. Composting is one of the great ways to solve our climate problem. And then uh, I moved back home to where I grew up. And my husband and I and my baby daughter were living in an apartment. And I kept smelling something. Just it smelled terrible. So I called the town and they said, oh, yeah, that's the landfill. Right. You live right near the Southbridge Landfill. And I said, oh, okay. They said, oh, we're fixing it, though. It's not going to be as bad. The smell is going to go away. I said, oh, okay. And then I moved into my hometown of Sturbridge, a full mile away from the landfill, and I could still smell it. And I knew that that's what it was, you know? And I had that, like, just having had a baby, extra sensitive sense of smell, you know, I was like a bloodhound, you know? So, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I could really tell, I could smell it. And yeah, and so then, then I started looking into landfills and then I found out that the corporation who was running it wanted to make it a regional landfill not just serve the people in the community but make it a regional municipal solid waste landfill and then yeah then I started working I'm I'm an attorney so then I started working on behalf of residents who wanted to shut it down and keep it from expanding um yeah and it is closed now we did eventually get it closed it took a lot to get there yeah, and a lot of lessons to get there, but, um, but it is closed because it was an especially bad example of a dinosaur of a technology. It was leaking and as they all do, but it was really leaking and it, and it ended up, um, they found a lot of contamination in all the groundwater wells and there were just a tremendous number of problems with it. So it is, they were not allowed to expand it in 2015 and it's shut down now.
0: Wow. Yeah, I think having your attorney's background is hugely advantageous, but I'm wondering where did the waste uh, go? uh, If that no longer became a regional landfill, taking in MSW from around the state, um, that displace it to a different facility?
1: Well, that is exactly the right question, Charlie. Like, that's exactly it. Because when When northern, you know, quote, progressive states start putting more environmental protections in place uh, and when more wealthy communities, the, the town of Southbridge where this landfill was is an environmental justice community. But when people around it start pushing back and when wealthy communities stop facilities from expanding like this, then the waste ends up going to, in this case, New Hampshire. Half of the waste that New Hampshire buries in its landfills is from out of state. And they bury, you know, like a million, almost 2 million tons a year. So a lot of that waste is from out of state. And a lot of it's from Massachusetts because Massachusetts is shutting some of its landfills down. Um, Another thing that's been happening with the waste, and of course, it's not like a one-to-one. The waste shed is very complicated. So that, for instance, you have haulers going to all different facilities and going to different transfer stations and some... Waste companies that bury or burn waste own the transfer stations. And so it gets very complicated very quickly. You know, it, everyone thinks of it as just the residential waste that maybe a residential community, of a city or town has a, a contract with one place and that's where the waste goes. And that happens sometimes. But as you said in one of your blogs, 60% of the waste we're talking about is business, commercial, institutional waste. And, and that's 60% is in a dumpsters, yeah. For
0: like special waste, you know, yeah. a lot of exactly. landfills are permitted for abestus or yeah. tires, you know, just.
1: Contaminated soil, contaminated soil. Yeah, yeah. There's a crossroads landfill in Maine that takes, and, and this isn't taken in a lot of places, it takes ground up telephone pole, poles, as well as tires, ground up tires, and those are some. That's some of the nastiest, most toxic stuff you can imagine. Wow. So yeah. So those special wastes, what you're talking about, are really nasty. And so, and there, and there's a lot of tonnage there too. So, you, we can't say for sure one for one where the waste is going. Like all the waste that went here is now going there. It's more complicated than that. But what we've seen is uh, push push for expansion of landfills in, as I said, Maine, New Hampshire. Uh, and then also, we're seeing Massachusetts send waste to Ohio, North Carolina. And, and I would assume that Florida being a big state would end up taking a lot of different waste from the from, you know, the whole southeast, I would think too. So, yeah, you know, I, yeah,
0: I'm sure it's, um it, it's maybe transported via rail, like New York City is famous for not having a landfill, but generating an insane amount of waste every year. So they even rail their MSW as far south as like South Carolina. But yeah, yeah, yeah I hate yeah. to think about it. But yeah, that's so interesting. You mentioned the term waste shed and all the infrastructure that is kind of behind the scenes that most people don't think about.
1: That's right. And that's why I always say you can't just be against the facility in your backyard. You have to have the attitude that it shouldn't be in anybody's backyard.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and this is true, you know, in this the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. This is true in New England, because always it's going to end up in the communities that have the least amount of money, the environmental justice communities that need the most support. They're going to be the ones who get the burden of incinerators and big landfills. But it's also true regionally. I don't want our waste to be going to Pennsylvania or Ohio. I don't want our waste to be going to the Southeast. And uh, and I don't want you know, Florida to have that same impact too. And that's why we need actual zero waste solutions like composting that solve the problem. Because the problem isn't that you need some place for it to go. That's what waste management, Casella, Covanta, Wheelabrator, all the waste companies tell you because they get paid by the ton. Like People have to remember it's a tipping fee business. So what you're trying to do um, is, the, is a perfect example of a zero waste solution composting where you would be taking that tonnage out of landfills and incinerators. And as you've said in, in the stuff you've written, 25 to 33% of what goes in landfills and incinerators is food and yard waste. So if you're getting all of that out of there they're going to fight you tooth and nail because it's that's hundreds of millions of dollars in tipping fees that they don't want to lose. So, yeah. So what we've seen is waste management has a new business model where they're pretending to compost, and that really grosses me out. And that's you one of these. How really
0: they to buy a compost facility, operate it like half-ass for a couple of years, and then shut it down
1: <laughs> no no better than that better there than that, what they've, done, that
0: model. They, what
1: they've done is they've gotten the wastewater treatment plants to get federal funding for green energy for their anaerobic digesters and i'm not against anaerobic digestion but i am against mixing clean food scraps like this with sewage sludge mm. so they mix the food scraps with so the city of cambridge pays waste management 65 bucks a ton the mm-hmm. food scraps which are beautiful clean food scraps you should see how they sort in the city of Cambridge Charlie they do a gorgeous job they pick it up at the curbside the city of Cambridge brings it to Charlestown which is nearby part of Boston they chop it up and put it in water they slurry it then they drive it a half an hour to North Andover and it goes into the wastewater treatment plant the waste management gets paid 65 bucks a ton is a lot for composting, but they only pay 6 to $8 a ton for the processing at the wastewater treatment plant because the taxpayers have already paid to build the facility. And wow. then the stuff that comes out the other end is toxic. It's mm. totally toxic.
0: It's like unusable. And it, does it just have to be landfilled?
1: Well, it should be landfilled because has a different waste company has been trying to sell it as they call it organic compost, and it's been tested and it's full of PFAS. Mm. So what we're seeing, and, and you know you've probably seen this in a lot of places, there's a lot of places that want to spread sewer sludge on the land, land apply sewer sludge and call it a land additive, call it compost, call it organics, or they want to mix sewage sludge with food scraps and compost them together, like do woodrow composting with them together, or they want to do it in anaerobic digesters, like at the- Yeah, Wisconsin.
0: here, there is oh. a, a big um, to do. I wanted to interview the composting organization, Zero in Boston.
1: Oh, they're awesome.
0: About yeah. uh, the depackaging plants, leading to tons of microplastics and PFAS. Mm-hmm. But oh, that's interesting, I have, I am familiar with the Casella, Murph, in Charleston, and I even helped Cambridge do a waste sort back in the early days. Um, But that's really a shame that they're taking this like clean organic stream that, you know, residents are going out of their way to sort. And, uh, you know, they're using uh, compostable liners. And then it's just, it, it's going to not the best end use, it sounds like. That's
1: right, that's right. And they say it's because it's getting energy out of it, which, because they burn the methane from the anaerobic digester, but it's increasing the tonnage of the toxic material that needs to be disposed of that only really belongs in a landfill. So that is the shame for me. So we're working against that. Actually, Serro has helped us work with them uh, with, with folks against that. Mothers Out Front is pushing back on the city of Boston and city of Cambridge, so they stop doing this. Um, and so we're going to keep working on that. And that's something I'm concerned about across the country is that waste management and its subsidiaries, uh, Nibra, a lot of these sewage folks want to say that this is a good idea. And it's truly not. It's a terrible idea. Uh, and, and we've been fighting it a long time. You know, my my colleague, Laura Orlando, who's a scientist, has said that she's been working on this in a, and she worked on this in san francisco it's always been an issue the the other thing you just mentioned though charlie that i think is really fascinating so that's one thing right like you don't want to co-process uh your toxics with your non-toxics you want to isolate your toxics and try and keep them away from the natural world as much as possible and then you want your good i don't have to tell you you want your good clean food scraps to be made into compost so that that way they can replenish the soil which we're running out of so like that's that's the goal yeah The 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 uh, I'll have to hook you up with another colleague of mine, Peter Blair, who's been working on the depackaging issue in Vermont. The because uh, Laura Holmes from Sarah that you mentioned is really really smart on this and and really excellent too. You you should definitely have Laura on sometime if
0: you haven't yeah. already. Yeah, because she's got a you know meaning to for sure. And yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're such, we're, such, we're, such a wealth of knowledge for that region. I'm realizing and. I'm fascinated because that's where I went to college and kind of got my roots in the waste industry. Uh, But I've read a lot of the news uh, out of kind of New England and these depackaging plants. But this sounds like one of the policies that's being worked on is just zero zero kind of uh, tag teaming on this as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so, uh, what Peter Blair has been doing in Vermont is uh, he pushed to have the agency in Vermont review the uh, the packaging plants, and so Casella built one. And the farmers, because you, you you know, as as you know, the w- the best thing to do is to not make wa- food that's going to be wasted, right? Like that's the best thing to do. Then the next best thing to do is to feed people, so it's not wasted, right? So many people are are food insecure. If we can save the food and feed people, that's awesome. Then the next thing that we love to push for is feeding animals. And that's what was happening with the food from the depackager. And just for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, a depackager is uh, like, it's kind of like a big big uh, spring that squeegees all the food in between this column so that it comes out separated from all the bags and other- Or like plastic.
0: little hammers. I, I think like the machinery in these depackaging plants from what i read it's just like um thousands of tiny little hammers that just like squeegee it out of yeah
1: yeah yeah uh,
0: steel cans plastic um containers you name it so
1: and so the yeah exactly so the problem is that the farmers who wanted to feed their pigs this which is fantastic all good stuff uh, there's a ton of plastic in it, like something like five percent sometimes, sometimes more plastic than that. And you can't feed animals plastic and yeah, think that, you, you know, gotta have zero yeah, percent. You should have zero percent. So the farmer sat down with the agency, and uh, Peter's been Peter Blair from my office has been, you know, right at the at the front of it all talking and finding out okay, how can how can we make this work? Maybe depackagers should only be used for certain kinds of packaging. Maybe we need to not use filmy plastic at all in anything that's, you know, period. I would say period. But maybe we have to especially avoid it if we're going to be doing using the depackager. So that's something that's being figured out by the agency in Vermont. They're going to be writing a report on that. And I'd like to take that and send that to every state that's thinking about diverting food scraps, you know?
0: I would say that would uh, be great for a state like other states that aren't there yet with depackaging plants uh, that we could learn from what's happening in new england to hopefully not make the same mistakes but one big question i have for you you mm-hmm. clearly know how like big waste the big waste companies um you know they just do whatever is kind of the best for the bottom line typically How is just zero, you know, combating them with uh, the different policies that uh, your organization is focused on?
1: Well, I think, I think everything we do is kind of with that in mind, Charlie, because honestly, the big companies are the problem, right? Like, I think that the, there are some resource constraints. Maybe it's hard to get a composting program set up, but where we see the laws blocked um, and progress really halted is because of big corporations. So it's sometimes waste corporations. It's sometimes big beverage and sometimes big plastic in the fossil fuel industry. So I really look at us as being truth tellers and also promoting the ideas that are as sustainable and fair and clean as possible. And so that's kind of so I think everything we do is kind of with that in mind. But more specifically, um, we've worked to call out big beverage. For instance, we we you know uh, released a media uh, advisory with our friends Beyond Plastics that it is not cool for Coca Cola to be sponsoring COP twenty seven, the the uh, climate uh, yearly meeting of the United Nations. That's baloney, right? Like they're they're the ones who make all. They're the number one plastic polluter in the world, you know, five years in a row, according to the the beach cleanup information that Gaia does. So come on, you know, what are we dealing with here? Yeah.
0: And I'll mention that in my past career as a waste consultant, you know, after a few, many projects that were just sponsored by Coke or Pepsi, you know, we would work hand in hand with the recycling partnership, which, you know, they do good work, but they're, funded almost entirely some of their projects are funded by coca-cola it, it just like it it kind of made me question like you know what is recycling all about it, it's almost like uh they're trying to you know divert attention from um their plastic bottles that millions of them end up not recycled and the ones That's that right. get recycled you know they get one more life as cheap polyester or you know carpet or something so
1: that's that's right charlie so i think i think that's 100 percent correct charlie and i think that you can see the parallels in the composting story we just told about the sewage sludge the what big beverage has done is said bottle bills you know deposit return system they work that's the best recycling programs we have yeah and and so what the big Be- big beverage has done is gone around and said we're going to give through Keep America Beautiful and other local organizations, we're going to give you a little bit of money for curbside recycling, which curbside is not a bad thing, but it doesn't work as well as a bottle bill. And 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 also curbside, there are a few things that we refuse to just acknowledge in the United States about curbside, right? Like, for instance, in Europe and other places where the you know where where, um, curbside does work better like in certain parts of Canada for instance glass is always separate glass contaminates all the paper and the cardboard and the good the plastic that is recyclable and the metal so as soon as you put glass in there you've decided not to recycle this stuff
0: yeah Orange County Florida where I live they accept glass in their program but yeah it just gets shattered and contaminates and mixes with all the shredded paper but that's so like I'm sorry to just I have to add my two cents about bottle bills because I remember back when I was living in Boston I I snuck into that Casella Murph and wrote a blog and Casella invited me into the facility to meet with their VP and they they like you know they're like said, that's fine. You wrote a blog, but we want to talk to you about how you mentioned bottle bills are actually good. Uh, They didn't like the fact I I was giving bottle bills such high praise. But if you think about it, there's no other way to get a clean stream and almost recycle like what aluminum cans, probably 80 to 90% of the aluminum cans in Massachusetts and New York are all those bottle bill states are all just, you know, kept from the landfill because there's that small five or 10 cent incentive to get off the street. And that, you know, leads me to think that as an entrepreneur, like, can we have other materials that have financial incentives that we could potentially uh, have people who, you know, just like walk in? Like in my neighborhood in Boston, it was older Chinese ladies probably with nothing else to do that were just collecting the cans and bottles and, you know, rifling through people's curbside bins. But um,
1: no, I I could do a whole I could do an hour just on the bottle bill. So we could totally do that if you want to, (laughs) because it's so because so first of all, as an entrepreneur, you're thinking about this. That That's one thing that people miss about composting and recycling and about circularity of the economy in general. You have to preserve the value of the materials, right? The reason that you're making your composting business work is because clean food scraps have value and you're gonna, you're, you create a product at the end. Not only are you taking care of part of a problem for folks because they want to get rid of their food scraps, but you're creating a product at the end that has value because it's actually clean and usable. If you take away some part of that, if you meet, if there's too many plastic vegetable and fruit stickers in it or too much uncompostable uh, foodware, you know, like fill in the blanks, anything like that, then you're taking away the value of the product. And then it doesn't, then you can't create that business. And then you're not going to ever see good composting. The same with bottles and cans. Aluminum has a lot of value in Massachusetts we're still not recycling as much of it as you would think of our aluminum cans because a lot of those cans aren't included in the bottle bill. We only have beer and soda. Um, We don't, and, and then with glass, as we said, because it gets mixed into curbside, it's so contaminated that they literally use it for road beds or landfill cover. And so, but all the bottle bill glass gets recycled. So why not have like wine bottles and all of our bottles should be part of that system. So that's one of the things we're trying to do in Massachusetts, but also we're trying to do that in every state that has a bottle bill. Uh, California actually just added wine and liquor bottles and knit to their uh, bottle bill. And that's going to make a huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. And I think also, the other part you hit on that's really important. So it's preserving the value for an entrepreneur. It's preserving the value of the material so that you can then produce something that's a feedstock for new, uh, new products or a product in and of itself like compost. The other thing is that incentive or system to get it back. People talk all the time about replacing uh, foodware with compostable foodware, for instance. And I always tell them. Is there a composting system where you're talking about this? Like it's, it's one thing to ban the plastics made from petrochemicals. Like I totally agree with that, but if you're replacing it with something that then needs some place to go, but there isn't some place for it to go, you haven't solved the problem. So you have to always keep in mind, is there a system to make it work and get people to bring make it as easy to throw stuff away in that system and that separate system as it is to throw their trash away. And if you accomplish that, then yeah. And so one other place, for instance, two other places, for instance, where there's real money to be made, I think, Charlie, in Northeast, um, cardboard is is a cash crop. And we are throwing away millions of tons of cardboard every year in Massachusetts. It's ridiculous. So that needs to be kept separate so it has its value and made into a new product and think about the upstream impact on trees and everything else. Like, you know, as an environmentalist, there's all that. But even just as a person who likes money, it's ridiculous to throw that cardboard. And
0: I want to just mention the, they call her like the, the nine dragons cardboard queen. She's the Chinese billionaire that, uh, is the founder of the nine dragons company that uh, recently has bought a couple paper mills in the United States and is recycling a lot of the East coast cardboard. But she started out um, in LA as, you know, a a immigrant and her and her husband would just show up to the landfill and pick through the trash with with, stuff it in their, their, their minivan yeah you know that's kind of how she started this uh empire off the back of you know one man's trash so
1: yeah Yeah. i definitely
0: think that's cool
1: (laughs) well we we had uh mills that were recycling paper and cardboard in the northeast and the glass one single stream started instead of dual stream dual stream recycling kept the cardboard and paper separate in the northeast and then once single stream started, all the mills had to shut down because the glass contamination was so terrible. So that makes total sense to me. And we have to be smart. And while you can sometimes recycle something that is contaminated, you're not going to be able to um, upcycle it or recycle it in such a way that it's most beneficial or most um profitable it, you end up being more likely to have to down cycle or to you know like you were talking about like clothes like you know bottles into clothes for instance or bottles into carpet that's downcycling. if we if we don't do a good job keeping things clean then that's that's going to be part of the result and that's why the plastic in curbside that can be recycled which is very little of it um, it gets down cycled, best case scenario. Also the plastic and curbside, we're always really worried about, and, and, the, and Coke and those companies are always worried about if there's any other contaminants in the curbside that would, that make the plastic toxic. And then if they made a bottle out of it and tried to sell you Coke or water in it, that they, you know, Pepsi or whatever it is, some soda or water in it, that they could make you sick. So that's one of the reasons bottle bill plastic bottles get made into bottles, even for the plastic. Where's mm-hmm. the curb to uh, but the other the other moneymaker that I think like if you said to me, Kirsty, you're gonna do the hard part now, instead of just talking about the waste issue and you know and advocating with people and trying to get le- legislators to do the right thing, instead you're going to actually have to run one of these businesses, which I think is the hard part. I would go with either the composting piece, definitely a good way to go, the cardboard piece, or textiles. We've got, mm-hmm. you know, we've got really valuable textiles that are 95% reusable and recyclable. And of course, you know, in the North, it, they're heavier duty. I'm wearing a wool coat even like right now, mm-hmm. um, which I know for Florida listeners probably sounds insane. But uh, but so that, you know, th- those textiles, while maybe a little bit more valuable in the Northeast are still valuable everywhere. And we don't have infrastructure for picking them up or finding drop-offs for them or sorting them and so that piece you know is going to be that that's a piece if you could sort them well then you wouldn't end up sending a lot of it to landfills say in in Africa yeah. or other places too you know
0: uh, yeah and uh, just to give you a little background uh we run a composting company where we pick up five gallon buckets but we recently started a special recycling service where we're picking up hard to recycle items like textiles, batteries, you know, cords and wires, et cetera. Well, but I didn't know
1: textiles. I saw that you did cords and wires and electronics and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But I didn't
0: I realize you did textiles mean, too. Cool. Saw the opportunity and you know, how big, how, you know, that's probably 5% of uh, what's going to the landfill. So, yeah. A lot of water is used to make those cotton oh textiles. My gosh. So yeah. um we're able to collect a clean stream from our subscribers, but of course, it's only for our subscribers. I know in Boston they have a couple of drop-off bins and for-profit textile companies. I think there was one called Bay State when I was living there. But, there's
1: uh, yeah yeah there's so in Boston but also throughout Massachusetts for instance here in town I know where the drop off bins are right and they're mostly corporations who um are for profit corporations but then they make a certain number of donations each year to try and like to to support the movement as a whole. like there's a, you know mm-hmm. like that's kind of how they so it's not, I wouldn't say they're nonprofits, but they I would say they're co- corporations with a conscience who are trying to do things a lot of times, you know, mm-hmm. but there's also a lot of what we call like guys with trucks, Charlie here. Mm-hmm. So they like have a bin at, you know, Annie's country kitchen in Sturbridge Mass where I live. And it's not really clear whose bin it is, but a guy with a truck picks it up and brings it to a central location for the clot, you know, to recycle the clothing. The problem with that is the guy with the bin isn't making as much money as he could be because there's no sorting facilities. So it's going long distances to be sorted, so he gets paid less. And, yeah. and then the other problem is we're not capturing all the markets. So you're probably going to capture. You know that whole five percent, and in and in, in the northeast, it's more like six to eight percent. So mm-hmm. it's a lot, but you're probably going to capture that whole five percent, but just from your subscribers, which is still something. Here, if you're dropping it off, you're not going to capture the whole five percent. Like you're, you know, we're going to capture maybe two percent or one percent. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I, you know, that's the other piece is we want to make it universal.
0: Yeah, I, I did. You know, our business down here is called American Textile Service or Recycling mm-hmm. Service. And they're a giant, you know, they have right. drop-off bins throughout the southeast. And they, they transport it in a big tractor trailer to a city like Houston, where they have their sorting operation. Ah. That's, you know, they have three tiers, I think. The first tier being what's reusable, rewearable, the second tier being like carpet or insulation, the third being like machine shop regs or something.
1: Right. Or like stuffing for cars. Like yeah, cars stuff. But they
0: told me it was a very low margin business. And I don't I don't know if I believe them, but I think um it's always nice when you can find a waste diversion solution that is, you know, profitable and that, you know, people can step in and, and do that. So. Well,
1: I think it's low, I think it's low margin because again, that's a pretty, that's a huge region to be shipping it across for sorting. If you had somebody who did that in Florida, say any place you had, one of the things that they've talked done in certain parts of Massachusetts is any place where they have curbside, this company has started paying the town or city 20 bucks a ton for the textiles they pick up. And they, um, you put it out the same day as your recycling so that the van knows to tra- traverse the same place that the recycling route is. And they just pick up the, I think it's sometimes it's purple bags, sometimes it's pink bags, you know, different companies use different color bags. But you don't have to put a bag out every week. You just put it out when you've cleaned out your closets and you have bags, you know, and then you get another bag and you fill that one until it's full. And that kind of collection where you're getting more of it, first of all, that gets, you know, gives you more of the material. So that's excellent. And it's also a certain, um, a, a certain uh, supply of the material, right? Like you need to be able to depend on getting a certain tonnage. But then the piece that's missing is local sorting, and like the composting piece, if we did a local sorting, that would be um, that would be local jobs, right? Like I want to see jobs in the communities where the materials are being used, and that's the way to really get good green jobs going, right? Like composting, right. And, and the same for the sorting textiles. Then you'd have, as you said, like the clothes that were actually reusable, but you'd also, what, from what I've read, be able to separate types of clothing so that for instance, all denim would be in one bundle. And you know. so if you have h- local human sorters, you can have more valuable bales because the bales are better sorted and there and then they can be sold to these other places you know so I mean, so i think yeah. the
0: answer is to localize as much of the waste infrastructure as possible yeah. which makes yeah. community comp- composting so great but to shift, right. shift gears i mean you're obviously very well versed in this and i think that's awesome i i you know I, i'm a little bit jealous that you have the attorney's background and I I want to ask, like, when you meet with your team, what are the top five policies on your board that are priorities? Um, you know, to really change like the industry uh, for the better.
1: Well, we have we have four different programs. And I I wouldn't say that I don't think it totally reflects our top policies per se, because I would say we're opportunists, you know, too. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes things like for some reason, EPR has gotten really popular recently. Okay, we'll make sure that there are good EPR bills out there, right? So sometimes you have to kind of roll with it and see what the opportunities are. But our four programs are keep composting clean, uh, reduce, reuse, and recycle right, uh, stop burying trash, and stop burning trash. Like those are basically our four main programs. So one thing that we're really worried about is we don't wanna see bad infrastructure built that will lock us into a more polluting future. So an example of that is the American Chemistry Council has been pushing bills and they've passed them in about 20 states. To deregulate waste facilities that burn plastics or chemical recycling or advanced recycling, as they like to call it, um, they pitch it as being something where they break down the plastic and then they make new plastic out of it. But in reality, they break down the plastic into its different constituents and burn it. They can't. That's they can't. Make plastic out it is diabolical. It is diabolical. So what they've. So what they've. Uh, yeah, they also call it molecular recycling. That's a new one, Charlie. Oh. So yeah. So it's a, it's a new brand of nonsense. So the, what they've done is they've gone to these different state legislatures and said, we're going to recycle so awesome and so scientifically. And so it's like Star Trek. You're going to love it. It's called chemical recycling. But the only way we can do that is if you don't regulate us like a waste facility, you have to regulate us like a manufacturing facility. Because most states have laws in place that say, oh, wait a second, you're a waste facility. We really need to take a second look at you. Um, and that's a good thing. So that's one piece that we're fighting against because we don't want to see a bunch of new incinerators across the country. So that, and then also, uh, you know, so we've drafted a model bill that's actually on our on our website today, people can look at. It's like, if, you know, we, we want to ban any kind of burning period of any kind of waste. It's not renewable, it's not clean, it's not safe. And it produces, uh, you know, for every four tons of waste you burn, you end up with about a ton of ash. That's toxic ash that needs to be landfill somewhere. So and just yeah. to like
0: mention, uh, if 50 percent of the waste being burned is organic and is, you know, it is, yes. moisture, it, yeah. it takes extra fossil fuel to eat, burn through that. So it's it, not efficient. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: Not yeah. Efficient. it's not a good way to make it's not even a good it's not even a good way to make energy. So, like, there's no upside. And, and a lot of these facilities end up closing down because they take public money and they go bankrupt because they can't work. So, that's one area that we're working on. And then we're also trying to shut down existing incinerators. Um, there's, you know, we don't have enough staff yet to do as much as I'd like to, but we have been working for years now with, when, you know, at our uh, former jobs with folks in Saugus, Massachusetts, who are trying to shut down the oldest incinerator in the country. Um, And then we are huge fans of Gaia who are doing this work across the country. And so we're always trying to get that word out too, You know that incinerating trash is really stupid and dangerous and the ones that we have should be shut down.
0: As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile microbin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of asp composting i encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with peter moon by going to his website www.o2compost.com that's the letter o the number 2 compost.com if you mention that you heard about o2 compost on this podcast you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the microbin compost training program
1: so that's another piece. You know, this this uh, zero waste to landfill is baloney because if you're incinerating it then there's going to be 25% of what percent of what you're incinerating is just ending up in the landfill anyway. And the rest of it is just like landfilling in the sky, as Gaius says. It's just yeah, I mean, the yeah. state
0: of Florida even includes what is incinerated in the recycling rate for the state.
1: I was wondering why you had 40% recycling rate. I was like, that can't be true. Like, it's literally untrue.
0: Yeah. All right,
1: well, there's, well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, the state of Maine allows... The landfill cover—if it's—if they—if they chop trash up and use it as cover, they call that recycling. So, oh, like, you yeah, know, makes, yeah there's like all kinds beneficial of beneficial
0: cover is the term. Yeah. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. yeah
1: beneficial cover. Yeah, I—I yeah. I, my mother says that I'm a tattletale for a living, and I think that that's exactly right. <laughs> I'm tattling all these corporations. So that's the incineration piece, and then the landfilling piece. You know, learning about this landfill a mile from my house, um, all of them leak. All of them produce toxic leachate or landfill coffee. That leachate goes to sewer treatment plants and is one of the reasons that sewer sludge has so much PFAS and other contaminants in it. Like that's where the leachate always ends up unless it's leaking. Uh, So there's a bad game right there. And then uh, the uh, the methane production of landfills is off the chart. They, they can't capture it even when they flare it or burn it for energy. It still ends up being emitted from the landfill you know, for decades after the landfill has been closed, never mind while it's open. So landfills are, are just a hot mess. I mean, there's a hole in the ground that people pretend is protecting people. So that's one that we continue to work on. We're also trying to make sure we really uh, shed some light on ash landfills, the incinerator ash landfills. Uh, a lot of folks have done some really good work on coal ash landfills, which is cool, uh, but the incinerator ash landfills are really toxic also, and uh, a lot of folks assume that the ash is inert and it could be made into cement or something. It's It's actually a hazardous waste, but they've gotten out of the designation of calling it a hazardous waste by, you know, by a loophole. So it's really toxic and
0: carcinogenic, right? Oh,
1: carcinogenic. Like You name something you're concerned about and incinerator ash is going to create it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. got PFAS, furans, dioxin.
0: Incineration ash. There's the bottom ash, which is like 90% of it would after you burn the waste, it falls to the bottom and that's what get landfilled. But even more dangerous is the fly ash, what comes right. out of the chimney, and that's like 10%. And that's why if you live anywhere close to an incinerator, uh, yeah, get the hell out of there. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. And an ash landfill that just blows, I've seen it blow around, it's terrifying. And then the other thing too is remember, so they try and capture the fly, anything they capture in the you know filtration systems ends up in these bags and then they landfill those bags. So, you know, it's not so if it's either in the air, which is horrible, we breathe 24-7. So if you live near a landfill or an incinerator, yeah, it's impacting you through your lungs. But then the ash landfill impacts local groundwater too. So, same situation. So, and then there's leachate that goes into the wastewater treatment plants and ends up in the rivers and the oceans. So it's it's terrible so that we're
0: gonna need like just zero support here in florida because we're the incinerator state i think we have the most incinerators in the country and there's been uh some recent drama down in broward county where uh they're trying to build another uh incinerator plant and with the incinerator plant uh, they basically control, you know, the types of inbound waste, and it would essentially um, cut off any of the community composters from uh, their oh, business. Yeah, that's working.
1: terrible. So, so yeah. anything you do to reduce that's like uh, put or pay contracts like that, exactly. um, or yeah, it, anything that what they a lot of times what they do is they say, okay, you're giving us a hundred tons of waste a year, you know, city of Charlie and then city of Charlie reduces their waste by 25% because they start composting and they still charge them for a hundred tons a year. So why would the city bother, right? or they do what you're saying and say, you're not allowed to compost. We need that tonnage. You're just not allowed to. And so th-
0: they're allowed to do that, which is- It's
1: horrible. So, yeah. so and, and none of the new incinerators are um, safe either. There's this idea that if you burn things, the toxics, like you know, hazardous hazardous household chemicals, electronics, Uh, certain construction demolition materials, and then the plastics are all really toxic. And if you're burning that the toxicity doesn't just go away, it ends up in the ash or the air. So Mm -hmm. that's terrifying Charlie and no we would definitely you know, this is what we're trying to build, uh, build our team up for because uh, the, that is the stuff that really keeps me up at night. But then on the other side of it, so that's you know, our shaking our fists at the problems, but then the other side of it is you need things that work. And composting, as you know, is one of the best ways to reduce your waste, keep the methane from being emitted from the landfills, uh create local green jobs save money all of those pieces are happening never mind the soil the carbon that's sequestered in it so, yeah. like, so the composting stuff we just want it to be done right that's what we're worried about you know because right. yeah yeah
0: well let's, yeah let's talk about the positive i mean uh there's composting community composting on one end and then mm-hmm. it, it's kind of opposed against what i like to think is just people and big companies trying to come up with like the silver bullet solution. Oh my gosh. But, I
1: say that all the time. Yeah. yeah That's it, not how life like, is. Let's
0: be lazy. Just all in one bin or. No. Generated. It, and, and here we are like creating jobs. Um, you know, we're trying to come up with the best use for the end product and a clean stream. Yeah, and, um, yeah. you know, it, it's just like, that, those are kind of like the black and the white I see yeah. in, in the yeah. waste industry. So, yep, I, think but that's I right. mean, I want to ask you, like, um, what are some like definitely positive trends you're seeing uh, in the waste industry, maybe there locally or, you know, not nationally? And... Yeah,
1: no, definitely. So one trend is that people are really interested in composting and getting it And the waste companies have charged and the the waste companies that run the recycling programs too have charged cities and towns and counties so much money that they're trying to cut their tonnage and composting is a great way to do it. So reducing food waste in all the ways we talked about in composting. That's a trend that is it's really happening. There are more composting businesses every year across the country. There are more cities and towns that are doing pilot programs. We just need to make sure that they know what a good system looks like that's safe and fair versus a system that's not. So that piece of it is awesome. And I see a lot of progress there, tons of progress, since, literally tons of progress since I started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the low hanging fruit is the joke I always make. So that's going great. And then the another piece that is, I think is going really well, though it's partly because people are so terrified, people now understand that plastic is unsafe. We shouldn't be eating or drinking out of plastic. If you drink out of a plastic bottle, it is very likely you're drinking microplastics because of the capping process so that's real and people get that now now that they've found plastic in our placentas and blood and brain yeah, and lungs, yeah.
0: Like fertility rates yeah yeah yep. so
1: yeah so i think people are finally realizing okay plastic is dangerous and so that is really good the piece that we need to make sure people understand is that um this idea that we can burn it and it goes away uh, even if we call it chemical recycling, is nonsense. And also, uh, one thing people don't always get that's really important to understand is that if you give me a glass bottle, I can make another glass bottle forever. You know, I mean, there's always some wastage and you know loss, and you know that's like life, that's real life. But you can recycle glass endlessly. And if you give me an aluminum can, I can recycle that endlessly. And if you give me paper or cardboard, I can recycle that a number of times and then I can compost it. So if we keep toxics out of all those things, like glass is non-toxic, that's already a winner. Aluminum, we're lining with a liner of plastic and aluminum can that has liner in it. So that's not good. We gotta figure that out. Um, Paper and cardboard, we can make awesome paper and cardboard packaging for food or whatever we want without toxics. So we need to make sure there's no PFAS or other toxics in our paper and cardboard, which has been happening a lot to like stop uh, grease stains and things like that. Mm -hmm. We got to make sure there's no toxics in any of those things. So that gives us a way to produce these goods and to some of them make truly circular and some of them like paper and cardboard less circular, but still much more circular than most things are now. Plastic is not going to get recycled. And it only, in best case scenario, can be recycled a few times. So if you create a closed loop system, like a bottle bill, where say it's 10 cents to bring back your plastic bottle, so I bring back the plastic bottle, and the big companies, Nestle, Coke, Pepsi, knows it was a bottle, it has a UPC code on it, so they know it was for a drink, and then they recycle it back into a drink, that's going to result in some Plastic recycling. And that's pretty much what all the 4.7% across the country that Greenpeace just found. That 4.7% of plastic recycling, because remember, all the rest of it's getting burned or buried. Mm -hmm. That 4.7% that's being recycled is because of bottle bills that's in the 10 states that have them. Most plastics, though, are not recyclable in the real world. They're never going to get recycled. And the reason for that is there's too many different kinds. Like even if you have a green Mountain Dew bottle in your bale, you can screw up the rest of the bale if you have enough of those. Mm. So like that's, if you have number one plastic PET plastic, and some of it's a different color, you can't recycle it. That's a problem, right? So that's the reality we're dealing with. And then the other thing is there's just too many different types of plastic across the board. And there's no incentive to actually sort it and clean it. It, You're never going to have, remember we are talking earlier and you hit the nail right on the head. What would an entrepreneur want to do and create a business out of? You would never want to take all the plastic. And when I say all the plastic, we're talking about, cartons that are covered in plastic, you know, paper covered in plastic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a juice box, which is layers of plastic and metal and paper, a pouch that's at layers of, you know, those pouch like, you know, Sunny D drinks and it's stuff. Pouch. Yeah, yeah, uh, filmy plastic. It is never gonna be cost effective to separate those in a clean in clean streams and then ship them far enough to be recycled because plastic doesn't recycle well, and many times you end up if you have a ton of plastic you end up with less a ton than a ton of recycled and plastic
0: i'll just interject so, and say a lot of the plastic recycling happens in asia where labor is so dirt cheap that that's the only way you can make it economical is by putting all these you know really poor people in plastic yards who are sorting dirty plastics and living basically on That's right. the plastic, so. Yeah, yeah which I mean, brings us to the that... whole
1: unjust piece too. And then the other piece of it, so so plastic recycling, we can t- we can think of a way to make textiles a money maker. We can think of a way to make paper and cardboard, glass and aluminum money makers. We can think of a way to make food a money maker. You're not gonna be able to do that with plastic. And then beyond even that, they the uh, fossil fuel industry doesn't want to make it a money maker because they want, their whole business model is reliant on fracking all that gas, right? And taking that cheap gas, cracking it, using the ethylene to make the plastic. Like that's their new business model. They need to sell new plastic every year made of the new virgin gas. So we are never going to have, and and there's a great NPR article about this um, by Laura Sullivan there's it, it was known from the beginning in the 70s and the 80s that plastic recycling was never going to work and they didn't want it to work and so and and it also just doesn't make sense because the pollution at every stage plastic plastic recycling is nasty you're not going to get cancer from a composting facility you will get cancer if you live next to a plastic recycling facility. It's really nasty. That's why these plastic facilities have been locating in the, the poorest parts of our country, because they're so nasty. So that means that we need to phase out plastics. And here we're really talking about foodware mostly, right? Like I'm not worried about the plastic components in my car or my contacts, right, My in my eyes. We're talking about all that foodware, single-use stuff that I mean, we're going away. Use, yeah. 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 So that piece is really important to us. You know, the composting piece is really important, but the plastic piece reducing the use of plastic, if we're going to be recycling it, we want to be using systems like a bottle bill that could move towards a refill system with glass bottles. Like that's the ideal for the bottle bill is to phase us out of these plastic bottles entirely, you know?
0: And I think I see the parallels with community composters, our audience. If you're a community composter, your number one contaminant is plastic, uh, you know, single-use food serviceware. So you should be waging war against uh, that single-use plastic. And here at O-Town Compost, we try to provide, uh, you know, compostable options through one of our uh, partners, EcoSafe Zero Waste, who has, you know, a lot of compostable versions for, like, single-use prep gloves or... um, you know, liners, bags. uh,
1: bags. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, and I think, and so I think the thing is, there are some things that you are going to, you know, like my my contacts, there's some things you're going to need it for. Um, And if you can do a compostable version of something like the prep gloves, that's a really good idea. If there are things that you can not use, that's always best because you're not using, you know, any energy or any resources then. And then there are things that you can buy that are reusable, that's better. So, Again, I think people in their homes can drive themselves crazy. I know I do sometimes, um, you know, and trying to do make the best purchasing choices you can. And I always tell people first start composting, then you're going to notice, you know, if you're recycling and composting, you're going to notice everything that's left. And then like what we did, I bought, you know, reusable napkins because I said, this is crazy. Why am I using all these paper napkins? Why am I using all these paper towels? I'm going to get rid of those. And so you just kind of keep chipping away at it. But I think composters are in some ways most aware because of that. They understand this problem uh, mm-hmm. more intimately, I think, and more thoroughly than a lot of people do because they've said, oh, wait a second. There is a sticker on my avocado. Shoot. You know, like that's not, that's a plastic sticker. It's no good. And so then suddenly they start to really get it. You're right, Charlie.
0: Cool. Well, um, I'll just ask you one more question and It's uh, more about the, you know, the community composting industry and just zero, you know, how do, does your organization plan to kind of support and collaborate with the community composters out there, like zero in Boston, bootstrap, you you name it. So,
1: well, that's, that's really funny that you asked that you asked that, because what I was going to tell you is. This winter, we want to start a coalition of composters across the country. And we're not thinking that, um, you know, not everybody has to be a pro like you or Laura Holmes from Cerro. You know, there are some folks who just care about composting, have started a local composting group, uh, you know, have connected to other people who understand how important it is and want to make sure that the policies in their states aren't allowing some of these really toxic you know, uh, practices to start. So, and I think some of the stuff you touched on, like uh, I think for instance, one of the, I know I brought it up a couple of times, it drives me crazy, banning the plastic stickers on fruit and vegetables. Like Mm. that's one that's crazy. But then some of the other stuff we talked about too, like making sure depackaging is only used when it works properly to keep the plastic out of the food, making sure we're not mixing sewage sludge with plastic, excuse me, with with clean uh, food scraps. And then also just supporting people with all the ideas. I think a lot of people would think it was really cool that there's a robust composting culture, for instance, in Florida. um, One of my colleagues, Lauren Fernandez is from Florida and she always talks about it. And I think a lot of people in other parts of the country have no idea. So we wanna start connecting people across the country on this and having them trade ideas, information, trade victories, trade failures, and then also just create that list of folks so that if you need someone to support you when you're trying to get something done in your county or your city or town, that there are a lot of people turning up for you and sending in emails and letters and stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, that's always useful. And I know Institute of Local Self-Reliance has a coalition of composters, but you know, the more the merrier. And I think um, if they're was kind of like a more policy related tilt because everyone I think every composter is fighting a, a battle, whether it's just a, a delayed battle because they haven't gotten big enough yet to, you know, make a big enough splash. But um, I know, you know, we're kind of delaying some bigger policy changes here in Florida that all of us community composters could really piggyback off of? Well, I'm a
1: huge fan of Institute of Local Self-Reliance. Brenda Platt over there is fantastic. So we want to make sure we work with all those kinds of partners. But we really are about the big policy issues like the, you know, as I said, depackagers, the sewage sludge, and getting laws passed, Mm -hmm. like bans and other things. So I think we, we would be able to work with the folks who already are doing this work. And as you said, help them out when they have the big I don't, I don't want to call them fights, or the, the big pushes for progress that I think everybody, I, I, I think it's really on the horizon right now, like the near horizon, people are really getting this done and that makes all the difference. To show the progress you're making really lets agency officials and legislators understand that this is real and possible. You know, So like just doing it every day the way that you guys are is in some ways the most important piece of all of this.
0: Yeah. Every community composter is doing their part. But I think you've really brought into light, like, who we're fighting up against, who we're up against. Um, it does help to kind of understand, like, the uh, where the other friction is coming from. Um, but, yeah, you're, Kirstie, you're a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate coming on the podcast and, You know, I hope we stay in touch.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, Charlie, send me the recording when it's done. And I'll make sure that we send the link to folks so that they can listen in. And again, uh, what you're doing every day is what everybody who composts is up against in the country. And I know there's a lot of folks who would love to listen and know about this podcast. So I'm really excited to share it with our network across the country.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Take care. All right. Thanks, Charlie. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. If you enjoy the Community Composting podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation. Even if it's five to ten dollars a month, we'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling.